Would you please open up your Bibles and find your way to the Gospel of Luke? We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning, and I'm going to be expositing the 15th chapter. So I need you to get to Luke chapter 15. The title of my sermon this morning is Religiosity and Prodigality. I want to start by saying something about the terms prodigality and religiosity. The term prodigality relates to the word prodigal, and this morning I'll be taking us into Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal son. In fact, if you have Luke 15 in front of you, you might notice that there is a little subtitle above verse 11 that says the prodigal son. So as, as you've opened your Bibles and you, you see that little, you know, that little subtitle there, the prodigal son, that's where I'm getting at with this word prodigality. But that said, it's worth noting that these notes or subtitles are not original in our ancient manuscripts. Uh, the historical figure Luke, who wrote this document in the first century, as a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul and a part of the eyewitness community of Jesus. He didn't originally write the prodigal son there. This was something that was added in the 1500s to help us navigate and look at texts. Uh, furthermore, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers were also added in the 1500s to help us to be able to reference the text. So if you're like, hey, where in the Bible can I find that? Oh, Luke 15, you know, of, of verse 11 is where you can find that. That's really helpful. Imagine living in the 1200s or 1300s where you didn't have verse and chapter and you got to find things, you know, the old school way, you know. I, I still remember as a, as a kid before remote controls being at my grandparents' house and I was the remote control. You know, it's like, get a boy, change it. Oh man, every time there's a commercial, change it, change it. You were the remote control. Praise be to God for remote control. So it just makes it easier to navigate, to click the button and find your way around the text. Anyway, so the verses, the chapters, the subtitles, those are something that come later. And, and, and in this case, I, I, I labor to point this out because I, I think calling it the prodigal son might not fully encompass the prodigality of the passage, which I will aim to convince you of this morning. So I'm going to say more about the concept of being a prodigal as we get into the text, but before we do, let me say something about this other term in my title, religiosity or religion. The term religion can be used in a good sense and also in a bad sense. In my sermon this morning, when I use the term religiosity, I'll largely be using it in the negative or the bad sense. When I use the word religion, I, I, there is a sense in which religion is good. I mean, we read in scripture about pure religion right, that is undefiled, that cares for orphans and widows in distress. So there's a sense in which religion is good. I mean, in a good sense, religion speaks of commitment. It speaks of philanthropy. In a good sense, it can speak of a body of beliefs and truths pertaining to God, morality, the afterlife, the unseen world, and more. In a good sense, religion can combine these truths with a way of life that is informed by science and informed by truth that actually brings character change to people and transforms communities of faith seeking to follow that way of life. So in that sense, you know, religion could serve a wonderful good. And in that sense, we can say Christianity is a religion. That said, I want to qualify that aforementioned line, Christianity is a religion, because fundamentally, Jesus did not come to start a religion. Friends, Christianity is Christ himself. Christianity is about a person and not a set of propositions or practices. Uh, to be sure, there are practices and propositions, but Christ came to offer himself. Christ came not to offer us a set of new practices to observe or a list of do's and don'ts or what have you. He comes to offer himself in a relationship with him. This leads me to the bad sense of religion. 
the bad sense of the word religion, to which I'll, I'll labor to say religiosity when I mean it in the negative sense, the bad sense of the word religion conveys a concept of the man, big brother, freaky control, judgmentalism. Imagine a big machine, you know, this big machine that cares more about the machine than anything else and, and just, you know, out of my way or under my wheel mows over things, the religion machine. The religion machine is more concerned about propagation and controlling people than it is about actual good. Uh, this religiosity has a, an unending list of do's and don'ts that change with the whims of culture and time. It says, do, 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 and then you'll be okay with God. And if you don't, 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 then God will be mad at you. This produces often in its adherence a kind of us against them mentality, those who are in the machine and those who are outside of the machine. It makes people judgmental over things that do not matter. It creates a kind of finger pointing and even backstabbing that has a way of ruining uh, families and communities. It often produces people who are hypocritical. Uh, you know, you picture a man who's cursing his wife out and getting drunk, but he thinks it's okay because, uh, you know, he does, he, he's boycotting Target for Pride Month or whatever. I know far too many religious people in this sense. I don't like it. It makes me nauseous, to be frank. It is a nauseating machine that is something that our passage today in Luke chapter 15 is going to speak to. That said, in our day, this negative sense of religion has a way of masquerading and flying under the radar of most people because this negative sense of religion has done an incredible PR marketing campaign that makes it quite palatable. You see, small religious groups that are all weird and judgmental are quite easy to spot, but there is a larger, incredibly larger religion that is all around us that most don't see because it has packaged itself not as religion but as spirituality. And so you'll hear this uh, doctrinal statement, I'm not religious, I'm, fill in the blank guys, spiritual, right? I'm spiritual. And being spiritual is somehow different from being a part of a religious judgmental machine. Uh, religion has its do's and don'ts or whatever, but, but being spiritual, right? See, that, that, that's, that's said to be different, to be spiritual. I went online on ehow.com and I, had, uh, I, I went on ehow.com and just, you know, searched for how to be spiritual, and, and this is what pops up. The article starts by saying, spirituality does not happen overnight. And that grabbed me. Um, that grabbed me. As a follower of Jesus, that grabbed me because actually our faith is something that happens overnight. There is something that God does in us in a, in a moment where the Spirit grabs a hold of us and washes and regenerates our soul, and it's an instantaneous, amazing gift that He gives to us. It's a gracious thing, something that we don't deserve, that He gives to us in a moment. Being born again and having new life in Him is it, something that He does, this incredible gift that can happen overnight. It's not something that we earn over many nights of laboring and, and, and earn over weeks of being spiritual and eventually we get to this place. It is something that is given to us in grace. This Ehow article goes on to list 18 things that you have to do to be spiritual. You see, the PR campaign is hoodwinked and bamboozled a lot of people because you think that being spiritual isn't all these do's and don'ts. Oh, by golly, it is. 
They have their lists of do this to be one of us. But this phrase, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, has allowed people to be religious in a way that is cool. The fact is, they have a long list of do's and don'ts, and they have a religious machine that is just as complex and consumerist as your run-of-the-mill uh, organized religions and cults. They have managed to stay cool, largely because of mainstream media, and hence pop culture is held by the throat by this kind of spirituality. It's so cool to be spiritual, but deep down it's just a bunch of religiosity. And this religiosity is confronted by the theme of prodigality in Luke chapter 15. At the core of being uh, re religious or having this religiosity or being spiritual, at the core of it is man and not God. Its center is the self and not the Savior. Now speaking of the Savior, let's get into his teaching here in Luke chapter 15 and study how he exposes the spiritual types and the religiosity, the religious pretensions of his day. Jesus subversively does so by giving a parable, which leads us to the first point on your outline, parables. Now, what is a parable? The word parable comes from a Greek word, parabole. The Hebrews called them mashal. What's a mashal or a parabole? Well, simply put, a parable is a made-up earthly story that conveys a true heavenly message. Let me say it again. A parable is a made-up earthly story that conveys a true heavenly message. In Greek rhetoric and rabbinic circles of Jesus' day, uh, at the time that Luke was writing this history for us, they used parables uh, in, in, in rhetoric for argumentation and for giving clarity, for proving a point, for illustrating something. The parabole was used in order to clarify. What's interesting here, though, is that Jesus... When he gives parables, he often does it not to clarify, but to conceal. If you were here at the beginning of the worship service this morning, one of our readings was from Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, 10, the disciples come to Jesus and say, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus goes on in verse 11 through 17 to talk about he speaks in parables not for clarity's sake, but for concealing's sake. He knows they don't want to hear it. And so he speaks in a way that it will go over their heads, many of his parables do. Jesus explains that those who understood his parables, they understood them not because of his rhetoric or his skills as a rabbi, but rather because of a supernatural work that God gave them. Something happened overnight. They went from not seeing, from being blind to seeing. They went from not hearing to all of a sudden Every word he says makes sense. So then, the parable is a story that can conceal, but it is also a story that can reveal. And so, as you read the parables of Jesus, that is our heart's cry to say, Oh God, reveal to me this, that I would not be among those who have eyes to see but cannot see. As it relates to the religiosity, as it relates to the spiritual types, this story was aimed at them, exposing their hearts and their way of life and approaching God with their do-do-do's and their don't-don't-don'ts. Look at verse 11. Here's the story. Jesus said, a man had two sons. A man had two sons. I got a story for you guys, a parabole about a guy and his two sons. As he continues in the passage, uh, these characters are going to experience some problems which leads to the next point on your outline. We move from parables to problems. Draw your eyes at verse 12. 
The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth among them. Let's stop here for a second. I want to make sure everyone understands what's going on. There's a father, he has two sons, we get that. The younger son asks for something that is actually quite unusual. He asks his father to give him his share of the estate. This is unusual because that's supposed to happen when your daddy dies. Uh, You're not supposed to do it that way. You wait for dad to die and then you get your share of the estate. Um, Thus, this in essence is a slap in the face. It would be akin to saying, I wish you were dead. Uh, this is a serious diss. I, I don't know about you, but if you want to get your dad riled up, just say, I wish you were dead, and see how that goes over. Uh, the, rigi- the original audience would have heard the beginning of this story, and, and you know, you'd hear that, the, those infamous keynotes, dun-dun-dun-dun, right? Like, whoa, he said what to his dad? You're about to catch a beatdown, bro. That, you don't talk to your dad that way. In that culture, that, that's not how things went down. In that culture, the eldest son would receive a double portion of what the other children inherited. So if there were two boys, the oldest would have received two-thirds of the estate, and the younger would have received a third. For the father to give this up, it meant that he would be emptying his pockets. He would be spending it all. His life insurance, his 401k, his, you know, and the rest. The cultural expectation would have been for the father to you know, uh, just, just backhand the boy, disown the boy, cut him off. Even worse, in ancient cultures, you can stone your children for being disobedient. You can literally get rocked. The father doesn't give him rocks. The father doesn't give him justice. The father gives him mercy, and he gives him grace. He gives, him, he gives his son the freedom to reject him. That's his son. His son is free to love his father or reject his father. That's not a robot. It's, it's not chat GPT, you know, tell me how much you love me. He has a will, and he can use that will to decide to love his father or reject his father. This is like God. We read in the beginning of the scriptures in the book of Genesis how God created the world and how God created humanity and made humanity in his image and gave humanity a free will in order to be in relationship with him and respond freely to him. That, that, that's what love is. God didn't make robots and program them to tell him three times a day how awesome he is or whatever. God created humanity with a free will. God, God gave humanity this great gift, and humanity took that gift. And so we read the opening of the Bible. It's a story of love, and it moves quickly into a story of unrequited love. God doesn't take our, our father and mother in the account of Genesis and beat them into submission. He let them have their way. And their way led into exile and the fall of humanity. But you know what God does? As you read the account of Genesis and you familiarize yourself with the story of the Bible, God just continues to give grace to the undeserving and the undesiring and the unworthy. He's like the dad in the story. This parabole is setting itself up where the father in the earthly story is going to be picturing for us the heavenly father. The father's response is just as culturally peculiar as the rebellious son. The father acquiesces to his son's demand, and he gives him his share of the inheritance. Again, understand the culture. It's a patriarchal culture. This is not an MTV, uh, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, Gen whatever, where you can rebel against your parents and, uh, you know, and you get a participation trophy for doing it too because no one can judge you, and who are we to say? This is an ancient world. This is where they throw rocks at kids for stuff. 
You don't do things like this. This would have been a tremendous cultural insult, and the father failing to subdue his son would have also been culturally offensive to men in that culture. As a father myself, I cannot imagine what this would feel like to be rejected by my sons, to have my sons wish that I were dead. I know in a crowd of this size, you, you know, we, we, we have uh, parents who maybe have relationships with children that, that are poor. We have, uh, you know, sons and daughters here who maybe are estranged from parents, and you know what this pain is. Or, you, you know, in a crowd of this size, we have people who've, who've received this uh, uh, pain from a spouse uh, who, who deeply hurt you and, and feeling that rejection in relationships that are intended to be free so that we use our free will to love and do the right thing. And oh, how painful it is when that doesn't happen. It's got to be hard to feel your love rejected and further to see someone that you love spiral into the third point on your outline, perversion. Moving down the outline, parables, problems, and now perversion. As we get deeper into the story, it seems from the passage that the son's motivation for money was not a hatred of his father. Rather, it was a lure from the world. We, uh, again, in a room of this size, no doubt you've had children hurt parents, children do stuff, they rebel against their parents, it's painful. Uh, we have parents who do stuff that hurts their kids. And, and in many of those instances, you see, it's, it's not so much that the parent hated the child or that the child hated the parent or the spouse hated the other spouse. It is simply the, the powerful lure of the world. I think of our contemporary uh, poet Tupac and his song, Dear Mama, where he writes about his mom and in the midst of you know, saying things about his mom, he talks about how his mom, and he calls her a crack fiend. He says his mom was a crack fiend, but then he talks also about, he knows that that was the lure of the world that was drawing her into drugs, but his mom desperately loved him, and he could see that. And I think so too in this text, you, you see the powerful lure of the world that can pull a man away from his loving father, and can pull away fathers from their children, and can pull spouses away from spouses, can pull churches apart, communities apart. The world is powerful. And we are foolish if we uh, want to live in this world and not be aware of its attractions and temptations. Let's get back into the text, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Jesus places an emphasis here on loose living. It is the Greek word zoon asotos. It means recklessness. It means senselessness. It's uh, immorality, it's wrong, it's, in a word, perverted. And often it is unsustainable because perversion leads to pain, and often uh, that the perversion that leads to pain leaves you penniless. In this case, we read that the son is penniless. He squanders it all. He wasted it. Uh, that's what living for the world is. It is ultimately a waste. He is blowing his money on cigars, cars, chasing the stars. And in these verses, we see that he just ends up with without anything. The son went to Vegas, and now he's all washed up. He hits rock bottom. He's like a, you know, a washed up guy talking about, man, back in the day, I used to, you know, I used to be a star. I used to, I was the quarterback in high school, you know, and you go, yeah, man, that was like 30 years ago. He's like the uncle on Napoleon Dynamite throwing stakes around. You're like, come on, bro, like, get your life together. You live in a van, you know? Yeah, but, you know, I was the man. You're like, you, you lost everything, bro. You lost everything. Verse 14, 
Now he had spent everything, and a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. He would have gladly filled his stomach with pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. No one was giving anything to him. Understand, this is Jewish culture, and so uh, swine is not kosher. I'm so thankful we're in the New Testament era and not that era. Praise be to God. Bacon-wrapped shrimp. They're both ungodly back in those days. So he's looking at the swine. He's like, ah, you know. But in that, in that culture and at that time, under that dispensation, you don't mess. You don't eat with that stuff. That's how low this Jewish son had gone. He is working with pigs. That's unkosher. He's hungry. He's looking at pig food thinking, mmm, I could, I could eat some of that. I've had, I've had pets over the course of my life. I've got two dogs now, and you feed them daily. I've never opened one of those, you know, those, those cans and thought to myself, I just want to take a bite. You know? This is disgusting. I'm just going to eat some dog food. No. The text references here pods. Uh, this is likely in reference to carob pods that are uh, indigenous to Israel. Uh, the carob pods uh, were associated with times of famine when Israel was being rebuffed by God under the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants when they weren't living right and uh, they would undergo a time of famine. Those pods were symbols of repentance. To have to eat those pods meant that you had brought some condition upon yourself and as a part of your repentance, you're taking ownership of it. Uh, the pods are not tasty. Wild pods are prickly and again, they are unclean. The sun has really hit the bottom, and the fact that he is working and cannot feed himself also indicates that he's probably in some form of indentured service, debt bondage. He's likely even being uh, exploited. There's the reference uh, that he is employed by citizens of another territory, which is an inference to Gentiles. So now this son of Abraham is under the boot of the Gentiles, and I, I mean, this is just utter humiliation. You know, and for that father back home, you know, when his, his, his homie Jacob comes over and is like, how's your son doing? <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, you know, he's, tra he's on a study abroad, you know. No, he's like looking at pig food, uh, working for Gentiles. I mean, it's, it's a shameful situation. Now, eventually, the son realizes his emptiness. As it says in verse 17, he comes to his senses. And this leads us from the point of perversion to the next point on your outline of, of penitence. Verse 17, draw your eyes at the text. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And I, I'm dying here with hunger. I will, I will get up to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned in your sight. I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. We see here from the text that the son is repentant. This isn't the empty sort of, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. How many times have you been told, I won't do it again, I'm sorry, and they do it again? This isn't the, or, or, or you know, the, the childish, I said I was sorry, gosh, quit bringing it up. This is deep, actual repentance. The son realizes that he has sinned, and he is putting, he's, he's putting it out there and saying, I, I realize this. He's acknowledged that he has sinned not only against his father, but ultimately against the father, against God. This is, this is huge. Those who remove God from the offense often, and, and uh, dare I say more than often, just always, they lapse back into the offense. 
because they treated it merely as an offense between humans and they didn't realize that the ultimate offense is against their Creator. He is willing to suffer the consequence. He takes responsibility. He acknowledges He has offended His Creator. He wants to make it right. He is willing to work to earn back the Father's trust. Verse 20, So He got up and He came to His Father, but while He was still a long way off, His Father saw Him and felt compassion for Him and ran and embraced Him and kissed Him. This leads us from penance to the next point on your outline, to pardon. We see the Father responding to pardon the Son. The Father gives His Son what He doesn't deserve. He doesn't deserve this kind of pardoning. He deserves a, a rebuke. He deserves a lecture. He deserves to be chewed out. But the Father doesn't do that. The Father embraces Him. Again, recall what I explained about the culture. This ancient Middle Eastern culture. The great offense of what the Son has done. Uh, I mean, He's taken His Father's estate. His dad has, has a large chunk of his stuff gone. And, and, and his dad responds by running to him. I, 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 I'm, I'm, thankful, I'm thankful regularly that I'm not God. You know, thank God I'm not God. Because, I, I mean, I wouldn't be like this character. You see, you know, the, the one who has offended you, headed your way, we're like, let me see what this fool's talking about. You know, I'm going to wait right here and just, just let him come all the way. And, you know, if he's really repentant, make him kiss the ring, shine my shoes, wash the car, do something, you know. But instead, he drops everything and he runs to the sun. He doesn't wait for an apology. In that culture, the other thing to realize here is for older men to run was undignified. Uh, furthermore, in that culture, uh, we're all sensitive to like cross-dressing and gender confusion stuff today, but in that culture, men actually did wear gowns too. So w for a guy to run, he's got to hike that gown up and be running with his little gown up. And so his legs and his creamy thighs are showing or whatever. It's undignified. Like, look at that old guy and his legs hanging out. Like, you know, boys in the village would, would clown you. They'd laugh at you. Like, what, what is going on with you? Why, why, why is he running? That's shameful in that culture. Why, why are you doing that? This brings me back to what I alluded to in the introduction with regard to the word prodigal. What is a prodigal? What exactly is a prodigal? The word prodigal has been defined as an adjective that speaks towards uh, recklessly extravagant, doing something uh, that is recklessly extravagant or having sp spent everything to like throw all your money into something, to spend everything that you have is said to be a prodigal behavior. This definition comes from an excellent book that I often recommend and give out. It's called The Prodigal God by Dr. Tim Keller. I want to give credit where credit is due. If you want to dig into this text even further, pick up this book. It's a short read. Now, speaking of digging into the parable, let's, let's pick up where we left off, verse 22. But when the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate." Now, I'll get to the parable in a moment. Just a sidebar here about slavery. Uh, the ancient cultures had slaves. We, we've been scandalized, and rightly so, by the transatlantic slave trade that was a horrible, demonic, race-based system that uh, took advantage of Africans and has residual effects on uh, black Americans and black people in the West, and it's absolutely a horrible thing. 
These guys here, though, in, in the text, uh, the, the slaves in verse 22, this isn't Kunta Kente and it's not a plantation, okay? It's first, first century world where you often had people who worked for you because they were paying off debts that, that you, you, they, they owed you. So, in other words, it's more Mr. Belvedere than it is Kunta Kente. It's someone who's just paying off a debt. Now, anyway, back to the text. The father calls for his servants and says, go, go, go get the best clothes out of the closet Go get, the, go get the bling, get the ring, get, get, get the stuff out, get, get the harachis, get them out. Bring, bring my Jordans, bring my Versace, get my nice watch. He decorates his son. He, he receives his son and celebrates his son. He is, he, the dad, is recklessly extravagant. He throws fine clothing on him. And then he calls for the fattened calf. I, I mean, let me get this straight. You diss your dad, you run off, you waste all of his stuff, and you come home, and he hikes up his gown and, and undignifies himself, and then just lavishes stuff on you? That doesn't seem right. It seems to me that anyone hearing this story, particularly in that culture, would say, this isn't right. What is wrong with this dad? What is he doing? Where is his dignity? Your son dissed you, squandered everything your family worked so hard for, and then he comes home and he gets the gown. You, you, he comes home and, and you hire a taco cart and start giving carne asada out. Like, what is going on? We move from uh, the problems and perversion and penitence pardon to now... It's party time. He throws a party. And what is he celebrating specifically, friends? Look at the text. Look at verse 24. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. What he's celebrating specifically isn't a change of behavior in his son. It isn't that his son was doing the do's and was, was admitting that he did the don'ts. What is, what is happening here is language of death and life. This is salvation language. We are born dead in sin. God graciously gives us life that we don't deserve. His son has been saved. That's what he is celebrating. It's worth noting here as well the larger context of the parable because we just jumped into the 15th chapter and I didn't give you the context going on here. But look at chapter 15. What comes before the parable of the prodigal son? Now, conveniently, because we have those little subtitles that have been added, you can see above verse 8, there's a parable of a lost coin. You see that parable of the lost coin there? Verse 8 through 10. And then there's a, a, a parable about a lost sheep in verse 4 through 7. So what comes before the parable of the lost son is a story of a lost coin and a story of a lost sheep. Draw your eyes at the text at verse 7. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8 through 10 are the parable of the lost coin. And it ends with the same thing. Look at verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Juxtaposing the sinner with the spiritual, right? The 99 righteous, the religious people right? That, that God in heaven and the angels of heaven are actually rejoicing over the sinner who has come and reconciled, and the other shenanigans of the spiritual types and the rest, nah, nah. The point here is that Jesus has come to receive sinners. 
Further, the triune God, the God who's Father, Son, and Spirit, who we've gathered here today to worship, this triune God is recklessly extravagant in the way that he pours himself out on the undeserving and the undesiring. Understand that in that culture, we've, we've looked at what, what it meant for this story to portray the Father that way. Understand in that culture, calling for the fattened calf, that also is a big deal, especially for a guy who has lost his estate. In, in societies at that, at that day, if you're going to have a meal, they most often don't include meat. We really take this for granted in our culture. Um, I know I do in my home. I, you know, I, in fact, I sort of feel like I haven't eaten unless there's meat on the table. Meat was very expensive in their culture. You might say, it's expensive at Costco now. Have you seen the prices? I know, but it was worse in their culture. The fattened calf is like the epitome of it. It's super expensive. It's costly to, to have fattened calves. Uh, to, you know, in their culture, you know, everyone would have some calves, some sheep and whatnot, goats and whatever, and you let your animals run wild, and they run wild, and they burn calories, and they, they get a little bony and muscly. You trap them in a little pen, you pour a bunch of pods in that pen, you spend money getting that calf nice and fat, you know what I'm saying? Don't let them get too old, maybe two years. Oh man, that's going to taste delicious. All that marbly fat around that red deliciousness. The vegans are like, I'm not coming back to church here. We, we got vegans in the house, shout out, whatever, right? Like this is, this is, whoa, this is not a Boca burger. This is the real right here. So you spend all that money to have that, and who are you spending it on? That punk kid who dishonored you? Tim Keller uh, writes in his book on this, he says, this scene demonstrates the lavish prodigality of God's grace. Jesus shows the Father pouncing on His Son in love, not only before He has a chance to clean up His life and evidence a change of heart, but even before He can recite his repentant speech, noting not even abject contrition merits the favor of God, the Father's love and acceptance are absolutely free. Let me emphasize that while it is free, it is costly. Dare I, dare I say, it is, it, is, it, it, is, it is so costly you can't even put a price tag on God's grace. God's grace is free for the sinner, but it is costly to the one who has given it, the Father. Because the Father sent His Son to die as a substitute for our sins. And I can't think as a father of doing something like that. Of sending my sons uh, in, in, into a place where they would die for my enemies? This is what we call atonement. It's what we call reconciliation and being made right with God. You see, God doesn't just forgive us of our sins. He makes the payment of our sin. And what is the payment of our sin? It's death. And that's an appropriate punishment because God is the giver of life. So rebelling against the one who has given you life means life is taken back. We deserve death. That's fair. We deserve an afterlife of punishment. That's fair. And yet God, what He does is He takes that penalty upon Himself in the sending of the Son. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system where animals would be sacrificed at the temple. These were all foreshadowings and pictures of the one who was to come, the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus. We read in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
The Hebrews understood that those sacrifices weren't actually accomplishing atonement or anything, but they were looking forward in faith to the atonement that would come in the Son who would be the Lamb of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In communion, after the sermon today, we'll have communion, and we have the picture of His body and the bread on the table. We have the picture of His blood on the table and the cup of juice. It, it's there pictured for us, reminding us this symbol of what He has done for us. I can't believe how fast this year is going. I, I was at the store yesterday, and they got pumpkins out. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. They got pumpkins. Uh, Home Depot ha- has been having the creepy Halloween stuff out for quite a while, too. And soon we'll start seeing Christmas stuff. What do we celebrate at Christmas? We celebrate the birth of that sacrifice. Without Christmas, there would be no sacrifice. In the virgin conception, the Son took on an additional nature. He became human. And thus, He had a human body. A human body that could die and could bleed out. The Son took on a fragile human nature so He could come to humanity, touch us, communicate uniquely with us, and personally uh, reveal Himself to us and ultimately die for us. The Son humbled Himself to come to sinners just as the father humbled himself to go to the younger son in the parable. That father humiliated himself by hiking up his robe and and running, and the Son of God did more than expose a leg. He gave up his heavenly robes to come as a naked baby in a manger, and ultimately as a naked, bloodied corpse hanging publicly on the cross of Calvary. The father did more than sell an estate when he sent his son He gave His Son to die for us. His Son was the fattened calf that was slaughtered for us. The celebration wasn't just, oh, my son came home and now I got my boy back or whatever. This is the work of salvation. The the religious people should be throwing a party. They should be excited. You know, He's come back. But they are not excited. They're not having it. Their ego, their fear, the blindness of their spirituality and religiosity can't see through this. They can't see through this. So Jesus, as He continues the story, He's going to show us, look, the younger brother isn't the only sinner in the story. Keep reading. Verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. He sees the, you know, the taco cart. He hears the... He's like, what is going on? And verse 26, he summons one of his servants and he began inquiring what, what all these things could, could, could be. And, and, and he said to them, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. You can see it coming. What is he doing? He's throwing him a party? I can't believe this. I can't believe this. Look at verse 28. And he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. This leads us to the next point on the outline. On on the back there, if you flip, we move from party time to pouting. The older son is a symbol of religiosity and spirituality. The younger son is a symbol of prodigality, as well as his father, where we see that extravagant, reckless grace being poured out. The older brother's angry. Here we see the heart of spirituality and religion and moralism. They are angry. They are angry when others do not do it like they do. They want conformity. They want control. 
They, they, they want comfort. They want acceptance. They, they want everyone to get along. They want everything to work their particular way. But notice the direction of his anger and where it is focused. It is focused on the Father. And who's the Father figure, a metaphor for God? What does God do in the text? He pleads with the religiosity and the spirituality of the older brother. He pleads with him. He pleads with him to see his own sin, his own anger. You're ultimately angry at God for being gracious. They are angry at God's election of who he chooses to save. They want self-serve spirituality that rewards good boys and good girls and punishes the naughty boys and the naughty girls. They want Santa and not a sovereign. They want to earn their salvation, not receive it as a gift from a gracious God. Listen as the older brother wrestles with grace. Draw your eyes at verse 29. But he answered, and he, and he said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a, even, even a goat, right, let alone a fattened calf, that I might celebrate with my friends. What about my friends? Verse 30. And when this, this son of yours... He's your brother too, buddy. This son of yours who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You kill a fattened calf for him? Here we see in the parable two dead-end paths. Let me put them in front of you. One is hedonism or relativism, and the other is moralism, spiritualism, religiosity. The younger brother is the first. He's the hedonist and the relativist. He does what he wants. The younger brother did what was right for him. This makes me happy. This makes me feel good. You know, I'm just being happy, and I'm going to do what I want. You can't judge me. Who are you to say? You, you know, all roads get to, to the same path. I'm, I'm just doing what makes me happy. He was a relativist. Truth and morality were what he felt in his heart, and he followed after his heart. He was a hedonist who lived to make himself happy and to please himself. Incidentally, I know a lot of people who destroy themselves on this path. But you know what? I know a lot more people who destroy themselves on the spiritual, moralistic, religiosity path as well. It's a gross misunderstanding of reality because doing good does not make you good in the eyes of God's law, or for that matter, in the eyes of any law. Follow me. If you break the speed limit and you get a ticket, you cannot fight the ticket on the grounds that more often you drive under the speed limit. You see, you, you, you can't go to court after killing a man and say, Your Honor, think of all the guys I haven't killed. There's been a lot of guys that had it come in, Your Honor. I mean, just this one time, but my goodness outweighs my badness. It doesn't work that way because the law presumes obedience all of the time. You don't become good by observing the law. In other words, you don't get anything for doing what you are supposed to do. Religion, moralism, spiritualism, all of those isms miss that. They say if you do good, then you're good. Religion says if you obey God, then God will love you. If, if, if you stop doing X and start doing Y, then God will love you. Uh, and, and he might even prosper you. We can sprinkle some prosperity gospel on top. The older brother did good. He stayed with his dad. He was spiritual. He did the right thing. He didn't run off. But look at verse 29 again. See what it says. Look at verse 29. See what it says. Look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never, I've never neglected a command of yours. I do good. I do good. I meditate. 
I recycle. I don't eat animal flesh, you know? I, I, I have an electric car. I'm nice to my neighbor. I, I got one of those signs on my lawn that, that says all the people I accept. I give money, I, I'm good. I don't judge people, except those Christians, right? But I, I, I'm so, I, I do the right thing, you see. You see, the spiritual person loves to look at the sinner and compare themselves to the sinner. As, as though God were grading on some kind of a curb. Compared to your little brother, I mean, the older brother is a saint, but compared to God's righteous law, you stand condemned, buddy. The scripture says if you have broken one of God's commands, you are guilty of them all. Why? Because God's law is a unit, it's not a list. Thus, to break one is to break the whole thing. Furthermore, it is not an abstract list on a piece of paper in heaven, rather it is flowing from the very nature of God. Thus, sin is an offense to God himself. The younger brother acknowledged that, right? We saw in verse 21, I've sinned against heaven. <laughs> I'm no longer worthy to be called your son because I've, I've sinned against the Father above. You see, the religionist or the spiritualist doesn't get this. Furthermore, the religionist is guilty of hypocrisy. They are just as sinful as the hedonist, but they are better at hiding it. They hide better. And that's why Jesus challenged his audience and said to those who were guilty of adultery that it's not just you who commit adultery that are adulterers, it's those of you who are looking at others with lust who are guilty of it. It's not just murderers who are murderers, it's those who have anger in their heart who are guilty of it. He's getting at the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. Look at verse 31 in the text. And he said to him, Son, you always have been with me, and all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and now he's become to live. He was lost and has been found. Now the parable ends here uh, with some principles for us to reflect upon concerning salvation and self-righteousness and spirituality and more. Religion ends in pride and despair. Pride. I made a list. I checked it twice. Right? I, I did everything that I was supposed to do. I'm a good person. Right? But pride is fundamental in sin. Pride positions us to point at others for what they're not doing and to see in ourselves what we are doing. And this pride will lead to total despair. I try hard, I try, I try, I try, and it doesn't work. I have my 18 steps from ehow.com about how to be spiritual, and I can't, I can't keep them all. Jesus, on the other hand, leads to a humble and confident joy. Humble, I can't do it. I can't, I can't square up to his law. But praise be to him who has perfectly obeyed the law and will give himself for my account. The older brother didn't see his need. He was relying on his deeds. He was more concerned about the rules of who was right than he was actually about the heart of his own father. He could not see. He could not rejoice in grace. Furthermore, he could not see the grace that he himself was getting. He certainly could not see the sin of his own heart. The fact is, the older brother was just as sinful as the younger brother, but it was clouded by his spirituality. And others around him probably didn't notice it because moralists and spiritualists are good at hiding their behavior. But look back at the parable. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. See something that I didn't emphasize earlier. Did you catch it earlier? The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me, so he divided his wealth between them. The older brother took his share too. He didn't stop his dad. He didn't say no. Sure, he stayed with the estate and he cared for things, but that's self-serving. 
His dad uh, gives it to him, and now he wants to profit off of it. That's a no-brainer. The point is, the older brother could have said, no, dad, don't do that, but he didn't. He took his, too. It is interesting, this verse. It is interesting uh, uh, how the silence is interrupted here as you watch the way the older son talks to his father. He doesn't speak with respect. Mind you, it's his father's estate, even though he is bequeathing it because he's still alive. Right? This is an insult. It's like saying, "I, I wish that you were dead. The point here is that you see the older brother was dissing his dad as much as the younger brother. And what does he do, though? He shouts, look at him. Look at what he did. But the law of God points back at you. Keep in mind the patriarchal culture that demanded respect for elders. The older son's behavior is absolutely outrageous. The father gives him exactly the same grace, though. Despite how he insulted him publicly, he gives him what he does not deserve. He should have been slapped in the mouth. He should have got a rock to the head. But instead, he reminds me, verse 31, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Friends, that's God's grace. That he, he, he offers parties for sinners. He offers his estate to the spiritual types. His love is absolutely extravagant. The parable ends here, and you kind of wonder what happens. You know, whatever came of the older brother? Uh, did he just pout and just run off or whatever? It kind of parallels the story of Jonah, so I imagine the older brother pouting as Jonah did, and God continuing to lavish grace on him, because ultimately God is a gracious God, and we can all give thanks and praise for that. When you look at the parable, the interesting thing, though, is the motivation of the sons. They both use their father for stuff. It's like gold digger religion. I don't really care about Jesus. I just want to get that ticket to heaven. I don't really care about Jesus. I want to get that health, wealth, and all that other stuff that those guys on the TV are saying. I don't care about him. I'd be just as well happy to get to heaven even if he wasn't there because that was the end that you were worshiping, your satisfaction. Both of the sons want the stuff, and they don't want the father in their sin. The younger son wanted to live by way of the world. He wanted his father's things and not his father, and so too the older brother wanted his father's things, and so he was mad that he didn't get, he didn't get the carne asada and the DJ. Tim Keller tells a modern parable that I think is helpful here, and I'm going to quote from him. He says, Once upon a time there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot that I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. The king was touched, and he discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you clearly are a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden all of it. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? And so the next day the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low, and he said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse that I have ever bred or ever will, and therefore I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you, king. But the king discerned his heart, and he said, thank you. And he took the horse and dismissed the nobleman. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, 
but you were giving yourself the horse. It's a very creative parable, and it's getting at the point. You see, the parable, it, 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 it wasn't about love of the Father and the bond of fathers and sons. It was about getting. The parable of Luke 15, we see the same thing. The older brother gives to get. The older brother is mad about the calf and the party. He is not upset about the father's heart. That is, seeing his younger brother crushing his father's heart and seeing his father just experiencing the weight of the sin of his son and all the agony and turmoil. Instead, he is angry about what he didn't get. And meanwhile, externally, he's doing the right things. Empty religion is that way. It will externally do the right things, but it is about behavioral control to get from God, not to surrender to God and say, God, have your way. There is a religion that is made of men, and there is one that is revealed from God, and the two are not the same. The religion of man is about me, my good works, my deeds, right? What is revealed from God is Christ, and Christ's deeds, and what Christ has done, and what you could never accomplish save for Him. Religion says, if I obey, God will love me. If, if, if I stop doing X and start doing Y, then God will love me. But true religion, redemption says, no, God loves you. In spite of everything that you have done, He chooses in His grace to love you. He chooses to give you what you don't have coming. And He Himself pays it. The Son becomes the fatted calf of the Father. He dies on a cross, again, bloodied and naked, taking our guilt and shame upon Himself. And friends, that is an invitation for you to come today to Him, to receive that wondrous gift. To hit the bottom like the younger son did and admit your sin, admit your need. The parable in the greater context, uh, look at the opening verses. I'm just about done. Look at verse 1. What does it start with? What are these stories preceded by? All the tax collectors and the sinners, verse 1, were coming near to him to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Right? It's, the, it's religiosity. It's, it's spirit, I'm spiritual. And you're rejecting the exclusive offer of God to forgive you. And you're, you're mad at Him that He gets to choose who He's going to save on His terms. You're mad at Him for that. The parables are aimed at those who could not see their sin, who failed to rejoice that sinners were receiving pardon. That is all the older brother. Meanwhile, the younger brother is a reality as well. These captures... These characters capture us all. So where are you this morning, friend? Are you like the younger brother? And maybe you've tried all that the world has lured you in, and you're at the bottom realizing its emptiness, but, but maybe you haven't realized ultimately that your sin was against the Father in heaven and it's time to come home. Or maybe you're like the older brother. You think that you're good because you're not as bad as those other guys. Either path, either path that you're on, I invite you to get off that path and come home. If you're a sinner, you repent of your sins. If you're religious, you repent of your dead religion. Whether we are older brothers or younger brothers, we're all perverted prodigals. The problem with the world is, is found in this perversion, that we're all sinners. Both paths are empty and damning paths. There was a newspaper once posed uh, this question. It was in England. The newspaper posed this question, what's wrong with the world? And they wanted readers to respond. And notoriously, the Christian G.K. Chesterton responded to this newspaper question, what's wrong with the world? Like this, dear sirs, 
I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. You see, the younger, the older, they're denying that reality. That, that look, look I'm, a, I'm a sinner. Liberation, life is found in confessing your sins and saying, look, I can't do this. I'm dirty. I've rebelled against you. Father, have your way with me. Let me remind you this morning that you don't have to walk back home. The Father will run to you. He ran to the younger brother, and he was there for the older brother as well. He says, all that I have is yours. So friends, hear the Savior calling today. All I have is yours. His righteousness is yours. His grace is yours. Let's come to him and celebrate what he has done. I'm going to pray, and then the table is open for you to come forward to receive these symbols that picture him. The bread, which again symbolizes his body broken for us. The cup, which symbolizes his blood shed for us. The invitation of the Father that you can freely receive forgiveness in him. And it can happen over a night. It can happen in a morning. It can happen this morning. You can be saved and born again. Let's respond to his word with communion and song. Would you bow your heads and hearts? Lord, we thank you for your word. What a great parable. So rich. Often we focus on the behavior of the younger son and we miss the main point of the older son. And we miss the prodigality of the father who recklessly lavished a love that was undeserving when it was unrequited. Father, we confess that we have grieved we have grieved your immutable character. We have broken your holy law. We are uh, so in, in debt to you, and it is a debt that we could never pay. Indeed, in our sin, we tallied up a, a, a great debt that was beyond. And, and the compounding interest of our sin just weighs heavy upon us. And then you come running out, receiving us, and throwing a party, and the angels in the heavens rejoice over one sinner who repents. Be merciful today. Save today. Sanctify your church for those who are in you as we are reminded this morning of the love that you have and your heart for sinners to come. We can become so isolated and, uh, and forget, Lord, that you came to seek and save the lost and you have called us to go and to find the lost and the broken and share your good news. We are so thankful, Lord, that you came not to start a new religion, but to save the religious and the spiritual and give us a true spirit within by your spirit. Receive these songs of worship. Bless our time at the communion table. In Christ's name, amen.